Ruffiner is an industrial organization psychologist specializing in organizational development and selection systems. He's also a member of the Committee for the Advancement of Professional Ethics in the Society for Industrial Organizational Psychologists, a DEI researcher, and a member of the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, or FAIR. Today we spoke about his research on DEI and why he believes it has to be completely and utterly torn up at the roots. What's the problem with DEI? Uh, the main problem with DEI is that it doesn't work. Uh, and when it does work, it usually works because of other what are called moderating variables that DEI generally ignores. Okay, so to give you an example of that is uh, DEI will look at a an organization that is being led by a black woman. And let's say that organization is doing really well. They'll say uh, it is doing well because it is being led by a black woman rather than looking at the deeper level criteria like her intelligence, like her conscientiousness, like the experience that she brings to the table, like the way that she leads, those deeper level behavioral variables that really make the difference in things like organizational performance. Instead of looking at that, they'll look at the surface level variables like race and gender and assume that that is the cause rather than something that is correlated with it. And then they'll say, well, we need more of the surface level variables. So rather than saying, well, we need to hire more people who are this conscientious or this intelligent or who have these kinds of background experience and then use those as assessment criteria for hiring and promotions, they'll just go straight to the skin color and gender and say, we need more black people or women in leadership. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that there's a problem with diversity. Okay. What I'm saying is diversity should be a happy outcome or a bonus that comes from hiring people who are competent individuals rather than hiring people because of surface level criteria like their race, ethnicity, or gender. What about situations where you would uh, hypothetically have two people of comparable skill sets, performance ability, uh, uh, you know, get along well with others, but one of them is a, a target minority group and the other one is not? And so people argue, well, then in those cases, you should obviously, there should be a, pre- there should be a racial preference or a sex mm-hmm. preference. You know, you should always try to boost diversity if all those other things being the same. What is your response to that? Yeah, I would say, and this, this, is, this is not a cop-out. It's going to sound like a cop-out, okay? But um, I would say that it's very rare that you're going to find an actual situation where everything else is equal, okay? If you do, uh, well, that, that, that honestly would be tough. But I will say that, you know, what... What importance or direct value does diversity in and of itself have to an organization? Okay, I'm not saying that's not important. I'm saying that there is not a meaningful correlation between the content of a person's character and the competency of their knowledge, skills, and abilities and their race or gender. Okay, there's nothing about um, being a woman or being a minority that directly translates to better communication skills, leadership skills, all that kind of stuff in and of itself, okay? So for example, uh, this is an example of um, how DEI gets it wrong. So they'll say, well, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic and the racial reckoning or whatever of uh, the George Floyd, um, you know, George Floyd dying, that shows us the need for empathy in the workplaces. And women tend to be more empathetic than men. Therefore, all other things being equal would say, we should hire the woman. And if it's true, and I'm pretty sure it is, Uh, that women tend to be on average more empathetic than men, then okay, let's measure empathy though, because you could end up hiring somebody who is a woman, but she's not empathetic versus hiring a man who is empathetic. Okay. Just because a certain identity group is correlated with something doesn't mean they're going to be correlated with it so significantly that you can use that surface level variable like race and gender as a proxy for the deeper level criteria that you should be hiring for like empathy. Um, but again, going back to the question, you know, what are the odds that, that somebody's going to be completely equal? Um, I would say it's, it's, it's not that high. So if somebody were to argue, I, I tend to agree with you, by the way, but, I, but the mm-hmm. counter argument, I believe, or one of them is that uh, if you were to seek out these types of diversity, this will inevitably lead to a kind of viewpoint diversity because people have various lived experiences and it shouldn't maybe matter that they are of a particular race or sex 
but societally it ends up mattering. And this is where you get into conversations about people being raced rather than being of a racial group, right? That's sort of something that is thrust upon them. And so even if they don't want to think about these things, they end up in a world where they are um, forced to have a certain type of experience on the basis of their uh, skin color, let's say, and therefore they're going to have a different perspective. And the argument is that that perspective would then directly feed into the work that they're doing because it would give them a different um, approach perhaps to a, a problem that we could imagine and and having a variety of, uh, of, of viewpoints on a problem is, is better than having a bunch of essentially yes men. And what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is like, yeah, the, the underlying logic of that makes sense. But then whatever those viewpoints are that you're looking for, why not, why not select for those specifically? Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, that's okay. exactly what I'm saying. Because um, if you is, – is it true that certain people of certain diverse categories have uh, or are more likely to have certain experiences, lived experiences than, uh, than other people? Yes. Okay, the best example, I think, by the way, is not racial or ethnic, it's gender, okay? Uh, I brought this up one time, and I know for some people this is a controversial thing, but uh, as, as a man, I'm, I'm never going to know what it's like to be pregnant or to have a period or to have to breastfeed a child or something like that. So if you are um, hiring women in the workplace who are ambitious in their careers, but they also want to have a family, then sometimes what you'll see companies doing is they'll offer... Uh, extra, you know, maternal benefits, extra paid time off, or extra, like they might have a, a daycare in the uh, second story of their office building. Okay, so that in those cases, those different lived experiences and the difference between men and women biologically can lead to different initiatives and things that that benefit people. Um, but when it comes to to race and gender, um, I am reluctant to say whether or not. Groups of people have a um, a a the same shared experience. Okay, so there's two things with this. One is um, uh, we we should not conflate lived experiences and culture with race and ethnicity. Okay, so for example, if you have a a black man born and raised in Houston, Texas, he is going to have a very different lived experience and a very different culture than a black man who is born and raised in Ghana or a black man who is born and raised in London. If you have a Hispanic person who was born and raised in California or New York, they're, first off, they're going to have some differences between each other, but they're also going to have different lived experiences and cultural experiences than a Hispanic person who was born and raised in Guatemala or a Hispanic person born and raised in Spain or somebody who was born to people who immigrated when they were a child in uh, Japan, let's say. Okay, so culture and race are not necessarily the same thing. It's also not necessarily true that. Um, everybody of a certain race or ethnicity has the exact same lived experiences. Okay. It is true to some extent. Okay. Like my Hispanic friends know about chanclas far more than I do. Okay. I don't know anything about, about getting hit with a chancla. Okay. My Hispanic friends do. Uh, my Muslim friends and my Arab friends always take their shoes off before they come into the house. I don't. All right. I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to get mud everywhere, you know, but that is a certain cultural difference. I will also say though, that there's a difference between having cultural things that are relevant to a person in their home and in their friend groups and having cultural things that are relevant to the workplace, right? Which is my main focus. So the taking your shoes off before you come into the house and the chancla throwing, those things are genuine ethnic differences, okay? But they don't really relate to the workplace, okay? So they shouldn't factor into um, uh, or organizational outcomes, okay? So that's number one is, is, is um, you know, ethnicity and race are not always correlated with culture. And even when they are, um, it doesn't always bear directly on the workplace. The other thing about this is, um, you know, I was reading this article a while ago during the, uh, the election between uh, Gavin Newsom and Larry Elder in California. And the LA Times came out with this article where this lady was simultaneously arguing that um, black people are not a monolith. But then like in the very next sentence, she'd say, if you vote for Larry Elder, you have betrayed blackness, right? So she, in the one instance, she said, black people are not a monolith, but if you don't do what I think you should do based on your race, you have betrayed this monolithic concept of racial identity, um, which is something that I see all the time. And it's like, you know, it reminds me of something, of, of, uh, something that John McWhorter said in his book 
uh, Woke Racism, which is a great book. I'd recommend that everybody read it. Um, and he basically said that, that, you know, there are a group of people who believe that people are not sufficiently black if they haven't had certain experiences like run-ins with the police. And he said, what a tragedy it is that black people, more than other people, are held to this standard of being inauthentic if they don't have, you know, experiences that are illegal or controversial like that. Or so harmful. I would say that, yeah, go ahead. I, I said, or, or harmful. They didn't, they don't necessarily harmful, need to be yeah. illegal or controversial. It's just like, you're not, you're not fully black unless you've lived. It sounds like some of these examples point to having a lower quality of life. Mm-hmm. Like having, yeah. having potentially violent or aggressive run-ins with the police or things of this nature. I mean, that's, it's not good or healthy for anyone to want to have, but people are saying, well, you're going to have to have that if you want to fully yeah. be a part of this group. Exactly. And if you think about it, like we, we, don't, we don't do that with anybody else. We don't stereotype downwards to a lower quality of life or a lower quality of, of decisions. Like nobody's telling Hispanic people, like, you're not really Hispanic unless you've, you, you dress like a cholo, unless you've had run-ins with the police or you've been in a cartel or something like that. Nobody's telling white people, well, you're not really white unless you're, you grew up in a trailer, uh, a trailer home. You know, nobody's telling it's, it seems to be mostly black people that are held to this lower standard of, of, uh, qualifying for the authentic black experience. Um, yeah. Why do you think that that is, what is the, is there an explanation in your mind for this phenomenon? Um, I think part of it is there is, and I'm not an expert in sociology here, but it seems like there is this thing in black culture where a lot of the cultural identity is centered around victimhood. Sometimes in what tries to be a, 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 a positive way, like an underdog story, and other times in a way that is self-defeating, that, um, that, that revives old grievances from the past and uses those as an excuse for failures, and other times as a, a narrative of what we've overcome and things like that, right? And that's not to say that, that black people haven't overcome a lot of uh, problems in this country. Slavery was awful. Uh, Jim Crow was awful. They had to struggle during the civil rights movement, and that wasn't all that long ago. Okay, I'm not saying that these struggles didn't exist, okay? But if you look at other populations of people, like let's say Asian people, okay? Asian people, not all of them, but some of them were put in internment camps uh, in the 40s. But they don't use that. That's not part of their racial identity. So I think I think that's part of it is it's partly a it's partly become part of the uh, their cultural identity. And then it's also become part of what we could call, and I don't think I'm making this up, uh, the the uh, grievance industrial complex, which is basically a group of people who realize that if you see yourself as a victim, I can sell you on victimhood and I can sell you on solutions that will keep you in bondage to this victimhood in a way that I can continue making money off of you while feeling like a savior. And yet I'm not actually doing anything meaningful to help you. Have you ever uh, read Status Anxiety by Alain de Botton? No, no, no. It's an interesting book. In the book, one of the relatively almost commonsensical points that he makes is that when you uh, when you hear about the fabulous wealth of somebody like Elon Musk, although I think the example he gives in the book is Bill Gates, but anyway, is it doesn't really make you feel bad necessarily because you're not so much connected to that person. Whereas if you were to hear that somebody that you went to high school with is now a billionaire, you might feel more of a tinge of envy in that situation that we notice the differences in status with between people that we see of as being somehow in our tent. And that could be a variety of different types. It could be like a racial thing. It could be that we're all the same citizens. It could even be bigger than that. But there's this kind of competitive thing that begins to fade away as you are more distantly connected. And I I wonder sometimes if that's not also a factor where we're all citizens in this country. And if there is one group that is outperforming or underperforming, not necessarily on the basis of whatever resources they might be working with, but comparative to other groups, mm-hmm. that can start to be a problem. An example that comes to my mind is because I spent many years in East Asia where the Koreans who were formerly colonized by the Japanese, that's certainly very, there were, there were atrocities committed. And that's certainly very vivid in the in the Korean imagination to this day. But I think also, it, I think some of that pain 
and their anti-Japanese sentiment that, that is still thriving in Korea to this day as well, would be less if not gone if the Japanese had the economy of Cambodia, for example. Mm-hmm. They would, they wouldn't, it, it just wouldn't sting in the same way. And I think there's something there. What do you think about that? I think that's possible. Um, so there's kind of two things that I, I think about that. One is I think it's possible. And if it is possible, if that's happening, I think that's important. But I also think that it's important to encourage the like a move away from that rather than wallowing in it. Okay. So for example, um, there are plenty of successful black people today and there have been throughout history rather than focusing on the grievances of all the things that you don't have, all the things that your people don't have. Uh, it would be more useful to look at what has worked. I'm talking the habits, uh, for example, of successful people in your community, like black people, as well as people in general to figure out what works for human beings overall and in America specifically so that you can get ahead. So rather than demanding system change that requires you to see yourself as a victim, um, look at the people who have made themselves into victors and then mimic what they do so that you can get ahead. I would also say that it's it's pretty useless to me to view myself through a racial lens. And I think it is for most people if we're comparing the success of different racial groups, right? So for example, um, there are, you know, black people in this country who are more successful than me. Okay. They are better at the things that I care about. They're better at writing. They're wealthier than I am. They're better at public speaking. One of the people that, I, that uh, comes to mind on this is John McWhorter. You know, I'm working on a book right now, John McWhorter, who wrote Woke Racism. He's written, he wrote that book, fantastic book. He's written a lot of other books. He's great in debates. He's a great um, uh, speaker and writer. I look up to him, but we're not in the same racial category. And he's also a a, uh, Columbia University professor. He makes way more than I do, you know, Um, and I look up to him, but I don't need him to be in the same racial category as me for me to find him inspiring. I think that's one of the things that we need to get past this idea that we should be measuring our own self-worth and our own ability to succeed based on how much other people look like us. Um, You know, in many instances, if you think that you can't do something like in America, for example, because you don't have people who look like you, that's not a problem with representation. That's a problem with imagination and discipline, right? Anytime somebody has ever done the first of anything in any category, they they have been stepping outside of what was you know represented at the time. Uh, for example, the first time that we put people in space, or I think Russians were the first one to put somebody in space. Uh, I might be wrong on that account, but um, uh, nobody else had done it before, so they had nobody to compare themselves to. Um, when other countries have wanted to catch up to the United States in the space industry or any industry, they haven't said, "Oh, well, we don't look like them, so we need to wait until somebody who looks like us." does this thing. They just did it. All right. I think that's one of the things that people are using as an excuse to hold themselves back. This idea that if people don't look like me, then I can't do it, which is a very shallow way to restrict yourself. Mm. I like what you said about mimicry. Uh, It reminded me again, going back to the example of Korea and Japan, where Mm. Korea is such uh, an amazingly impressive nation, what they've been able to accomplish. But uh, And I lived there for six years. I can't think of any of the examples in my mind of their awe-inspiring achievements as a civilization and as a people that I would trace back to anti-Japanese sentiment. Not a Mm -hmm. one. But there are many, some of the most impressive that come to mind that are directly traceable back to looking at what the Japanese have done that worked well and trying to do it better. And in some cases, succeeding in exceeding the Japanese, which, you know, then you're, then you really don't have much competition after that in in East Asia. And and they've, they've done that. It's, it's incredible. And so when those things are, when those issues or grievances or the victimhood mentality or whatever you want to call it is put aside, not entirely, Mm -hmm. not forgotten, not as if there's some denialism about historical atrocities, but, you know, let's. But that actually is is beautiful, and I admire the Japanese culture. Yeah. And let's 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 do that. Let's do that. That's working for them, and it might work for us. And those have been some of the greatest success stories in Korean technology, in Korean film industry, in Korean 
even fashion and in culinary arts. I mean, the list just goes on and on. It's it's yeah. it's beautiful. Actually, it's beautiful to see cultural mm-hmm. appropriation. I suppose is what it would be called, <laughs> but it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I I I, I didn't know you used to live in Korea. I used to live in Korea uh, for a very brief time, just like five six months as an exchange student. But my God, like I went to a museum that showed their their development over time since the Korean War. It's incredible. You know, I think there's something to be said building off what you said um, about looking at other people, because even even if you think an entire group of people like racial or national group or whatever is your enemy, there are still a lot of things you can learn from your enemy if you're humble enough and insightful enough to learn from them. But if you believe that your enemy, this opponent, whether it's racial or ethnic or or, uh, uh, nationality, is so irredeemably corrupt that the only thing left to do is to destroy them or supplant them or get rid of their their systems of oppression or something like that, then you're not going to learn anything from their success stories. You're not going to learn anything that could help you. You're going to, um, you know, destroy the stairs that could lead you to success because you don't like the way that other people have walked up them before you. And that's ridiculous. Mm. Mm. Well said. Uh, what do you think of the argument where people might say, okay, you want to select for these characteristics that we find admirable or uh, more efficient or what have you. And therefore, we don't necessarily want to select for these vaguer boxes of race or gender because we don't always know what those boxes contain. You might select someone for race thinking that you're getting X or Y factor and and, and you don't know that necessarily. It's actually racist to assume that you're going to get those characteristics simply because somebody is a uh, female or black. This is this is almost almost the very definition of racism itself. And one potential response would be maybe it's the fact that it is a black box that it's therefore good because you don't know what you're leaving out. You don't know what's in there, but you also don't know what you're not getting by not selecting for that. So if you're not trying to have, let's say, a lot more black employees. If you just instead go by these specific characteristics, you are choosing specifically the characteristics that you're going to end up with, and you don't know what you're not getting. You see what I'm saying? My, my response would, would be a question to, to whoever has an opinion. I would say, what specific criteria do you think we're leaving out? Because if, if that is true, and, and I agree with you when you said it is, it is at least borderline racist or sexist to make these kinds of assumptions. It's definitely stereotyping. Um, if it is true that we are leaving out some criteria, what are those criteria? Let's look at those. Let's study how they are relevant to the job, what kind of influence they have on important job outcomes and attitudes like organizational commitment, like job satisfaction, like performance and productivity and things like that. Um, let's try to figure out what those criteria are and how they relate to things so that we can use those and include those as selection criteria, for example, uh, in an organization. But otherwise, I would say, you know, most of the deeper level criteria that people are thinking you can get by picking somebody of a certain racial or gender category have little or nothing to do with race or gender, or they are, they're, they, they have some kind of mix there, but they're not necessarily connected, right? I'll give you an example of this. Um, I've heard some people say that if we want to uh, if we hire more minorities and women, then the people in those positions that we hire for, especially in leadership positions, will care more about the inclusion of other women and minorities. Now, this could be true, okay? However, there's a couple of holes that we could poke in this argument. Number one, it assumes that every woman and minority is concerned with, in general, or primarily concerned with, the uplifting and inclusion of other people who share those characteristics rather than other criteria like um, uh, gaining a position of authority, gaining a good income and benefits, gaining wealth, uh, leadership responsibilities, job satisfaction. There are a number of reasons why people choose a job. And assuming that women and minorities automatically care more about the inclusion of other women and minorities rather than other um, criteria, other reasons why they might join a position isn't of in and of itself an assumption, okay? It sounds like a good assumption, but then we also have to remember that there are many people who don't fall into those categories that care very deeply about the same things, right? So if you look at the American Civil War, all right, 
thousands upon thousands upon thousands of white people fought and died, sometimes in incredibly horrific ways, so that slavery could end. Those people were not part of the racial minority groups, and yet they cared deeply about what we might now consider the inclusion of minorities, in this case, in the democratic process and equal rights. The same thing goes for the civil rights movement and uh, the suffrage movement. Uh, even nowadays, when we talk about racial justice, if you look at the people who are marching uh, for Black Lives Matter, uh, the Me Too movement, they weren't all just the people who were directly affected by these things. It wasn't just black people who were marching in the civil rights movement or in the Black Lives Matter protests. It was also white people. It wasn't just uh, women who were marching in the suffrage movement or the Me Too protests. It was also men. Okay. Even now, there are many people in the DEI industry who are not who are not part of these um, racial or uh, gender categories who believe very deeply in social justice. So even if we were going to use um, race and gender as a criteria for how much people care about uplifting minorities and women, we would still miss out on a lot of the people uh, who could be uh, passionate and interested in these things. And we could just measure that through an interest survey, you know? So just because somebody belongs to these different categories does not mean we're going to get the positive benefits um, that we could otherwise get if we just measured the thing in itself, right? If there's one takeaway from what I'm saying, it is that if you really care about this or that criteria, don't use race or gender as a poor proxy for it. Go straight to the heart of it. If you don't have a way to evaluate it, create a way to evaluate it. And then decide based on that criteria. Do you do you foresee things improving in this way currently? Do you think that there's a shift taking place right now? Or do you think that things are going to get worse before they get better? I don't know. I've, I've, been, I've been thinking about this because I've seen people on both sides of the, the spectrum. Uh, I think it's not going to get better unless we make it get better, right? This is not a pendulum that is not going, it's not a pendulum that's going to swing back the other way on its own. Um, it is something that we're, we're going to have to make a concerted effort to stop. And there's a couple of things that occurred to me. One is that there have been a number of instances where people have said that, you know, this is the end of DEI, or they write a article with the headline, is this the end of DEI? Is this the thing that does it in? And I'm very, I'm skeptical of those things because I remember before the 2016 election, people were saying the exact same thing about Donald Trump. Now, love him or hate him, this is something people have been saying about Donald Trump for years, okay? Every time he said something controversial, every time he said something people didn't like, it, is this the end of Donald Trump? Is this the thing that does him in? They said that before he was elected. They said that almost every day when he was elected. They said it after he was done, and now it looks like he's going to be the nominee again, okay? So I'm sorry. I just don't buy into the these article headlines that say, is this the end of uh, uh, DEI? Because it's the same thing. There have been a number of times where something so heinous has happened that people go, is this the end of DEI? Is this the end of it? I don't think so, okay? I, I, I don't think it's going to be the end of DEI that easily. I think things like the October 7th massacre and the and DEI's response to it or lack of response to it, the hypocritical responses to it we saw from people like uh, Claudine Gay, those definitely, you know, they hit DEI, but do they defeat DEI? Do they push it uh, enough that we are now on the other side of this and we're just we just got to coast downward? I don't think so. All right. And part of the reason is I can see a couple things happening. Number one, the DEI industry is a billion dollar industry with a B. There are a lot of people and a lot of companies who have a vested interest in keeping this going. So all of them, for their own sake, are going to push back against it. Then you have the people who aren't officially part of the DEI industry, but they buy into it and they're going to push against it. Um, you've got. Um, the here's here's my prediction for for what could happen um if in the new election donald trump becomes president let's say everybody in the dei industry and everybody who buys into that ideology is going to use that to say this is why we need to not only have dei this is why we need to expand dei because clearly if donald trump could get elected again then we have to recommit ourselves to this to racial justice um um you know, social justice, all this kind of stuff. Um, I also think that there are a number of ways that we can measure the progress of defeating DEI. Um, 
One of those is <clears throat> by how illegal or unethical it is considered to do DEI. Um, and one of the good things in this regard is uh, the Supreme Court ruling not too long ago made it illegal to have race-conscious admissions in colleges. And that's great. But we still have plenty of private corporations who are doing exactly the same thing, if not worse. Okay, We need to make it just as illegal to engage in these kinds of discriminatory DEI practices in corporations as it is to engage in the regular type of racism that was banned by the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That said, this is going to be harder than that because DEI initiatives, if they're forced to go away, they're going to try to relabel themselves and, <clears throat> and hide. I'll give you an example of this. Um, there was a college in Texas that was it had to ban its DEI initiative, according to Governor Abbott's orders. So it got rid of its DEI initiative, or its DEI department, sorry. And what they did was they created a new department called something like the uh, Office of Cultural Competency and Awareness. So different name. Uh, and they put the former DEI department director as the director of that department. So on paper, they're complying with the governor's orders. On paper, they've gotten rid of DEI. But really, they just created a new department with a new name, the same people, doing the same thing. And I know they're doing the same thing because I went to one of these showcases for the new classes they were talking about launching. And I listened to their pitches for these kinds of things. And every single one of them had some form of woke ideology or DEI woven into it. For example, there's a class called um, uh, Psychological Thinking which makes it sound like it would include critical thinking, um, awareness of cognitive biases like confirmation bias, fundamental attribution error, availability bias, things like that, as well as how to do good research. And it did include some of those things, but it also included teachings on white privilege and microaggressions. Okay, so again, on paper, they got rid of DEI, but really they just transformed it and hid it deeper. Okay, so when we're trying to get rid of DEI, that's going to be one of the main challenges is we can ban it on paper, we can get rid of it, we can treat it as fundamentally discriminatory, but these people have a vested interest in keeping it going. So we're going to have to remain vigilant. What are the primary drivers in those interests to keep it going other than just the fact that, I mean, it's obviously become its own cottage industry and it's profitable, but you also mentioned a class of individuals who aren't profiting from it and they they vary strongly give their support for this just you know your general general members of the general public who are pro DEI if you were to stop them in the street and ask them and they're like yeah I mean it's a good thing it's uh makes things more equal and fair uh what do you think is driving that since they're not benefiting in the in the primary way well people can still benefit in you know meaning and uh belonging let's say Right. So for some people, this is this is actually, I would say for a lot of people, this is almost like a secular religion. OK, this is the thing that will make utopia on Earth. OK, so one of the ways that I explain this is um, I'll give you a couple of examples here. So there's um, the the there's Christianity, there's communism and there's wokeness. OK, now I'm not saying these things are all related. Right. But Christianity says basically once upon a time uh, we lived in paradise and then we messed up, you know, ate the tree from the apple, we got cast out of paradise. That's the introduction of suffering in the world, right? And only through um, belief in God and belief in Christ as our savior can we truly be redeemed. One day there will come a judgment day where everybody is judged. The righteous will ascend to heaven and the sinful, the people who do not repent will remain on earth and they'll get their comeuppance, right? But after that, all is going to be heaven. Uh, communism does the same narrative and almost theological uh, structure. It says, once upon a time, we were all in a state of paradise, a state of nature, and everything was perfect. And then private property was invented, and capitalism was invented. We're thrust into this world of suffering. And it's only through a socialist revolution, aka their secular version of the Day of Judgment, that we will reach the utopian communist um, uh, uh, heaven, and all the sinful bourgeois capitalist people will be gone, and all the people who hold everything in common will be living in a world of peace and prosperity, yada, yada, yada. Okay? Woke people say, once upon a time, there were these wonderful, 
perfect communities of um, non-white people. Everything was wonderful. Women were empowered. Minorities were empowered. Then the evil white man came, right? Their, their history seems to begin as soon as white Europeans specifically began to colonize the world. They don't look at the Spaniards. They don't look at the Portuguese. They don't look at, you know, Chinese imperialism or Japanese imperialism. It start, their idea of history kind of starts with uh, white colonialism and they say and then the evil white man came and they, these these poor minorities and women were thrown out of paradise and only through a social justice revolution can we reach a um, only through a social justice revolution can we reach that paradise again where minorities and women are empowered and everybody is equal and DEI is sort of the um, sword shield and holy book of this uh, semi-religious crusade to make this happen. Okay, so some people really buy into them. They don't necessarily buy into it as a religion. They don't think of it as a religion, but in practice, it's kind of religion, and those people are very zealous. Other people are not as zealous, and these people simply believe in the DEI lies that they are bombarded with. They believe that because it calls itself diversity, that cares about diversity. They believe that because it says equity, that it's about equal opportunity rather than forced outcomes. They believe that because this is inclusion, it's about including everybody rather than segregating people by things like race and gender and actually excluding people. Okay, so they believe the lies that are, you know, the opposite of what DEI is actually about. So that's that's two types of people. One, the really zealous ones who buy fully into it. Two, the people who are fooled by the lies. And three, the people who aren't necessarily fooled by it but the ones who believe that there isn't necessarily an alternative, right? I heard this recently from somebody who said, well, it's not perfect. There's a lot of problems. But if we didn't have DEI, then nobody would hire minorities. Nobody would hire women. Now, I thought that was ridiculous, but it was the first time I ever heard that. So I was a little stunned at the time. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, what? You know? Um, but that is one of those things where it's like, well, what are we going to do instead? And my response to that is, you know, DEI honestly reminds me of a uh, an abusive partner sometimes, like in a relationship. There's this idea that they want us to believe that without them, we're nothing. Without them, we're not going to succeed. It's them or nothing. It's them or suffering. It's them or chaos. It's them or discrimination. That's not the case, okay? We actually have decades of research that show how to design fair systems and procedures in a way that truly benefits everybody, okay? So there, there are multiple reasons why people believe in DEI and support DEI, but it, it depends on how much they buy into um, these different kinds of things. For some people, their reward is a sense of meaning they get from promoting something they believe is going to change the world. For other people, it's having that sense of belonging that comes from a, a community of like-minded people. And for other people, it's simply, you know, what else are we going to do? You mentioned the ways in which, uh, I mean, if you're using an analogy of an abusive partner, I would I would speculate that you're probably going to say that we need a complete, a complete and clean break from DEI. There's no reforming it. You talked about how DEI actually ends up doing the opposite of diversity, equity, and inclusion that it purports to do. But what if someone was to say, okay, but let's try to get it, let's try to get those things actually, not pretend to and get the opposite. Let's actually strive for those things correctly this time, which I've heard that argument, but I've also heard that exact same argument with regard to communism, for example. You know, like it hasn't worked out in the past, but but the next, the 20, the 74, the 99th time is going to work. We just haven't gotten it yet. And it's it's not our fault. Uh, so, okay, we're, you, you don't seem like a reformist to me, but you also acknowledge that it might be optimistic to believe that it's going to completely go away because, you know, the example you gave with Trump and I was, while you were talking about that, I was thinking about PC, which is not a term that gets used as much as it used to when I was a little bit younger, but we're still dealing with the exact same thing. It just, it just did a little, a little dodge and a slip and here we are and it's the same thing. So with the knowledge in mind that we're probably still going to be de dealing with this in some form or another in the next decade or two or three even as an abolitionist of DEI rather than a reformist, if there's a problem that you know is not going to go away, what do you do then if ideally you'd like to get rid of it completely, but you're also not very fond of utopian type thinking? 
especially in the way in which, as you described, it has the ability to, uh, when you try to pull it up by the roots, kind of like reintegrates itself more deeply in ways that it might take time to even discover, much less remove. So what do we do with this problem? Yeah. Well, okay, so so let me clarify. Uh, I, th I might have miscommunicated earlier. When I say that I don't think DEI is going to go away, I mean, I don't think it's, I'm skeptical of the idea that it is, it is on a downturn that will continue going without concerted effort to continuously push back against it, right? I don't think that you're going to be able to get rid of everybody who agrees with DEI um, any more than you can force people who are adamantly racist in the traditional way that we think about racism to stop being racist, okay? Now, granted, there have been people like Daryl Davis who have sat down with KKK members, and Daryl Davis is a, is a black guy, right? Uh, and he's converted them out of being KKK members, and he's done this with like over a hundred people, I think. Like it's incredible. Okay, it's possible, but most people who are gung ho about DEI are going to be are going to probably continue to be. Um, but I also think that it's it's a lot harder to get people to stop doing something that is wrong or ineffective unless you give them something new. Okay, so to to give you a um, sort of completely different example, um, one of the biggest criticisms I've seen leveled at uh, atheism, philosophically similar here, uh, is that atheism in critiquing traditional religions did not sufficiently replace the meaning, belonging, virtues, and other kinds of things related to those, which left people in a vacuum, and then they cling on to secular religions like communism and wokeness, right? Mm -hmm. So you can, yeah. you can if, if somebody's, let's say, adrift in an ocean of chaos and uncertainty, and you take away their, their, um, uh, their life vest, then they're going to cling to the first piece of driftwood they get, mm. even if it's rotten. Okay. So we can take away DEI, but we're going to be able to get people away from DEI much better if we can reliably and consistently, and I would, I would even add like marketably show them that the alternatives to DEI are not only better, you know, morally speaking, but financially and effectively. Um, I do think that DEI, it, it I'm hopeful, but I'm not optimistic, if that makes sense, that it's that's going away. OK, um, there's another question you asked. I don't remember what it was. About, you know, dealing with DEI when we know that it's not entirely going to be gone. How do we navigate that? Because we we may be abolitionists, but we're abolitionists in a world where realistically, if you're not going to completely get rid of it, then you are looking at reform in some hmm. way. Unless you're hoping for maybe like just to give an example, like a Supreme Court ruling that would you and then you would say, okay, we're not going to completely get rid of every, like you said, with racism, everyone who might happen to believe mm -hmm. this themselves, but at least we've cleared it out of government and we've cleared it out of the private sector. I'm good with that. We can stop there. Yeah. So that, that is actually what I would like to do. I would like to see a Supreme Court ruling with enforcement that bans DEI at every level of America. Okay. And the reason why I want to see that, because it's, it can sound extreme, but if you think about a lot of the other steps we've made in civil rights, um, we did not wait for every single person in the country to gain buy-in, right? When Lincoln signed the, Emancip the Emancipation Proclamation, he wasn't waiting for a big cultural shift. He said, I'm going to do it, and you're either going to fall in line or not, you know? And then there will be consequences if you don't fall in line. When, when um, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed, we didn't wait until everybody who was a racist stopped being a racist and said, okay, fine, you can integrate our schools. We integrated schools, and if people had a problem with that, we sent the National Guard to escort these those young uh, black children into schools to protect them. I think we have a history of successfully introducing, um, of, of stopping injustices through initiatives like this. So I am completely fine. I'm, I'm very much for um, using things like the courts to end DEI-related discrimination. Uh, as far as the argument goes, like, can we reform DEI? I would say that DEI ideology is so inextricably linked to DEI that you can't separate the two. It'd be like saying, well, can we have Christianity without Christ? I would say no, because Christ and Christianity are so inextricably linked that to remove one from the other would make it so fundamentally unlike what it is that you would lose everybody in that industry, uh, everybody in that system. Mm. And the entire time you're doing it, and this applies to DEI, 
the entire time you're doing it, you're going to get a lot of pushback from the true believers and the people who are benefiting. So if you say, I want to reform DEI to make us something good. Well, the people who believe that equity is about forcing outcomes, that inclusion is about segregating people in employee resource groups, those people are not going to be okay with you reforming DEI. They're not going to, um, they're not going to buy into it. You know, and we've seen this with people like uh, Dr. Tabia Lee, who said, you know, I would like a, a Jewish inclusion event on our campus. And she was a senior level, she was in a senior level position in a DEI industry. And they said, we're not including Jewish people. Like, what are you talking about? They're part of the oppressors. Um, and, you know, she pushed back against some of the racial discrimination from the DEI department and she was fired. She was called a white supremacist. She was called um, a, um, the, they said that she was white splaining when she tried to justify her moral stance on why everybody should truly feel included. You know, DEI has a history of not only engaging in discrimination, but forcing people out and bullying people who disagree with that discrimination. You're not going to, to, to end DEI's discrimination because it is fundamentally a part of DEI. I would even argue that you can't completely extricate it from its communist underpinnings. I mean, there is mm -hmm. a lot of sort of like communist scholarly work that led up to yeah, and postmodernist thinking that, which also in its way has a relationship with communism that led up to what DEI is, or even perhaps you could look at it the other way and say the DEI is really an expression of a certain type of communism. But the, and I think this is where you get into conversations in DEI about, you know, there are anti-West sentiments, there are anti-capitalist sentiments that are kind of, if you go deep enough, they're almost, I don't know if it's fair to say baked in, but they're deeply influential. I've never seen a DEI scholar who, if you look into their work, you don't eventually hit a Marxist wall or yeah. an anti-Western statement, or even worse, sometimes things that strike me as downright genocidal rhetoric, yeah. usually directed at white people, of course. Yes. Um, yeah. And the amount of the amount of, you know, the old, what is it called? The the switch test where you you ask yourself, is this mm -hmm. Should I be offended by, and it's kind of sad that we even have to have the switch test, that we need mm -hmm. some kind of a, a cognitive heuristic to help us understand if something is explicitly racist because they're talking about killing an entire race of people. But it's like, okay, wait a minute. So if, they, if she said that about black people, you know, I mean, most of these remarks that you see just utterly fail the switch test. And yeah. the DEI response, I think, would be, well, that's because there's a difference between punching up and punching down. So you can't do the switch test. It's not fair. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's 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 because they view they they necessarily view uh, the different identity groups in terms of a hierarchy, and it's a fixed hierarchy based on oppression. A narrow-minded view of oppression and a very ahistorical view of oppression, rather than everybody having the same equal inherent human dignity. Um, and I, when I say a very narrow-minded uh, view of of history and a very ahistorical thing, is because um, like I mentioned earlier, for woke people, and I'm including DEI people in this too, history begins, um, as far as they're concerned, when it comes to white people, history begins when white people began colonizing places. That's where it begins and ends. So they, they can go back farther than that if it means idealizing um, and uh, sort of whitewashing the history of non-white countries and non-white civilizations. But when it comes to holding white people accountable then it's the beginning of European, white European colonialism. Because again, they don't really, when they talk about the triangle trade and slavery, they don't really talk about the Spanish empire. They don't talk about what the Spaniards did to the Africans or what they did to the Native Americans or the South Americans, right? They don't look at the Portuguese. They look as soon as England, uh, uh, the, the English, the Dutch, and the French started doing things. And that's it. They don't look at the empire, the, um, you know, the Egyptian empire. They don't look at the Aztec empire. Unless it comes to saying, oh, my God, what a great uh, minority civilization that was. And they'll completely ignore all the atrocities. So it's like all the they treat it as if all the non-white civilizations have never had murder, genocide, rape, inequality, gender violence or any of these other things. It's all perfect until the white man came. You know, it, it's ridiculous. Mm. Mm. One interesting thing about that analysis that always directs itself at, let's say, white men is that 
part of that analysis, especially recently, is is the intersectional component. But I don't know if the some of the people who make the argument about intersectionality fully understand the ramifications that it potentially has, because with intersectionality, although I don't deny that obviously you can have different forms of mm. oppression, you can be oppressed as a black person and not necessarily, but you could be a male and not experience sexism. Of course, of course. Yeah. But then you've turned it from a binary into an aggregate, and that aggregation could result in situations often where a white guy has a claim to being a more oppressed individual on the whole because of his intersectional identities. And you can no longer focus on the whiteness because now you have, he'll say, yes, but look at my bank account and look at the fact that I have a disability or look at the fact that I, you know, my profession, my, I'm a minor, look at the fact that I uh, am maybe unattractive physically or, you know, et cetera, whatever. And that creates a situation that I've never seen reasonably, I've never seen it reasonably dealt with from the same people that push the arguments of that nature, where they're willing to concede that like, oh, yeah, I mean, it's usually, in fact, intersectionality is used as an attempt to refute arguments of the kind where someone might say, yes, uh, black people are historically more oppressed, but that doesn't mean you can't have a white guy who's more oppressed than a black guy, right? Like that is conceivable, right? And it just, to me smacks of uh, logical inconsistency on their part. Yeah. Not the only one by far, but... Yeah, that's it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight and trying to argue with them sometimes, you bring logic to an irrational fight and it, it's not going to work. It's going gonna, it's gonna to bounce off. They get right. mad. Um, they start... You know, it, we, here's a weird thing also. Um, generally speaking, in a debate, it's considered rude, improper, and a, a sign of weakness to attack somebody's character, right? And yet... They do the exact same thing. If you're if you're you know, winning in a debate, or they say or you say something that they don't like, instead of they will attack your character by proxy of your race or gender, right? Which is interesting because right. on the one hand they'll say everybody should be given um, uh, charity, everybody should be extended charity when it comes to like their intentions and all that, except for you because you're a white man. Yeah. So I'm going to assume the worst intentions about you. Ad hominem fallacies are back in fashion. And so, and then also yeah. a lived experience is often deployed as if to say, you'll, you'll cite data. And it's yeah. almost like a, a defeater argument, although it's not really a defeater for anyone who <laughs> understands logic, but they'll play it like a defeater mm -hmm. argument to say, well, that's not my lived experience. And therefore, whatever I happen to subjectively believe or think can overcome whatever you can objectively show me. And there's a few mm -hmm. other, I'm sure, that you've identified where there are these arguments that simply just doesn't make sense. But you start to realize that what they're doing at the end of the day is a kind of, um, it reminds me of uh, critical legal studies or critical race theory, where you approach the legal system almost, you come to this conclusion that like, okay, the justice system isn't perfect, legal formalism is flawed, and then every correction is an overcorrection, I like to say. And so... Mm -hmm. They overcorrect by saying the whole thing is a cynical game. And so we're just going to use our legal instruments as weapons so that our side wins. And it's no longer about justice or truth. It's just about us winning. Mm -hmm. And the same thing is being done with rhetoric. So any way in which I can win this argument, even yeah. if I'm drawing to subjective experiences rather than objective ones, even if I'm using ad hominem fallacies, it doesn't matter. I'll find a way to justify it because at the end of the day, I'm just, I'm, it's sophistry. It's like the classic of the yeah. ancient world, it's sophistry where it's just, can you win the argument even by dishonest means? We're not mm -hmm. trying to, we're not trying to be scientifically logical here. And that's what I see. And it often reminds me to the point that you just made about not being able to reason with people. They're not even trying to be logical. They're seeing logic itself as a colonial tool to oppress them. Yeah. And they're going to use that tool against, they're going to use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. And they don't care about mm -hmm. the fact. And Christopher, yeah. the fact they're living in it and also mm -hmm. that they've, they've played a role in it and that their fundamental presuppositions are wrong, okay? So for example, an idea that's, that's like, well, logic logic and rationality are Western things. Like, okay, take a mm. look at some of some of Hindu philosophy and Indian philosophy, okay? So for example, there's a bit of that that has a lot of logic to it. Like, I've, I was reading this one thing about Hinduism recently, because uh, I like philosophy and religions. Mm -hmm. And um, it was mentioning that there are three primary ways of, of knowing something. The first is by direct sensory experience. The second is by indirect sensory experience that can lead to the first one. And the other one is by expert testimony. Okay, so the first one, it gave an example of if you see a fire, there's a good chance you're not hallucinating. There's actually a fire, right? You see the flames, you smell the smoke, you feel the heat, yada, yada, yada. There's a fire. The second one, indirect evidence, if you see smoke rising above the horizon, generally speaking, 
it's not a hot springs. It's going to be a fire. Okay, so you can reasonably uh, deduce that there's a fire there. The third is if somebody says, hey, there's a fire over there and they're a trustworthy person, right? All of those things are logical argumentations for the inquiry of knowledge and mm. none of them are white. All right. So <laughs> this, 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 yeah, this idea that um, rationality and logic is the purview and the legacy only of white people is ridiculous, not only because it ignores all the non-white Westerners who contributed to it in places like Greece, you know, yeah. not everybody there was was white. It also ignores the incredible legacy of all of these other non-white cultures. You know, it's ridiculous. To my mind, the 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 Vedic scriptures of, Hindu, of Hinduism are the only religious scriptures that I've ever come across that are explicit. There are many others, Torah, the aspects of other Buddhist texts. You can see logical arguments, but there are none that are like explicitly saying, here's a logical formula. Here's how you yeah. do a syllogism, like bang, bang, bang. Mm -hmm. But ancient Hindu texts have some of that in them. And so the idea that it's even almost more absurd, but... I was going to say, when you were talking about how you can't reason with certain individuals, there's a great quote by Christopher Hitchens. You can't reason someone out of a position that they didn't reason themselves into. A lot of these people, you can, you can almost immediately sense when you engage with somebody that they've gotten there by, well, by, live, by means of lived experience. They've gotten there by means of emotional reactions to things that I don't seek to uh, demean or refute or invalidate, but that doesn't mean that those valid emotional experiences are applicable in this yeah. conversation let's say <laughs> like yeah. yeah we're not having a conversation about your feelings about an issue perhaps we're having a conversation about mm. the data on a different issue they also like we know uh, that our feelings although they are important and they do you know they do matter but they're not always reliable guides to reality you know, and there are many examples of this, not just not just in philosophy, but in psychology. OK, um, we have a lot of cognitive biases, right, which is one of the biases um, or sets of biases that I would actually like to talk more about. Like, like, uh, you know, a lot of times when I hear people in the DEI industry talking about um, biases or unconscious biases, they're almost always racial related or gender related or something like that. And there's a lot of assumptions, and I would argue, unfounded assumptions being made about these kinds of things. What I don't hear a lot of talk about is the universal human cognitive biases like confirmation bias mm. um, and, and availability bias, which have always been important to understand, but I would argue are even more important to understand with the advent of things like AI, deep fakes, um, global propaganda, um, uh, biased news media, social media, things like that. Like There are things that we could legitimately be teaching people that mm. would be useful and we're not doing it. We're going in the wrong direction. Um, there's another thing about, about arguing with somebody who, who won't see a rational side to it. And I, I remember it was, um, people who you're arguing with somebody who's, who's a woke person, they will move around between several points of, you know, not letting you win basically. Um, so you'll say, they'll say, um, historically, blah, blah, blah. And let's say it's wrong and you can prove them wrong on it. So you look, actually, historically, that's not true. And I'll say, oh, well, in that case, I feel like, and they move to their feelings, and you go, okay, well, your feelings aren't necessarily an accurate guide to reality. Like, okay, well, I know somebody, and I know people in this identity group, so they go from history to feelings to anecdotes, and then you say, well, now, hold on a minute. That's not really, um, you know, I could pull up anecdotes that would invalidate your argument. Mm. That doesn't mean it's true. And they go, well, historically, and they just bounce right. between those points. History, feelings, anecdotes. You can't win um, with uh, Michael Malice, the author Michael Malice has a great quote about this, something to the effect that, you know, what the definition of a right wing extremist is, is someone who wins an argument with a woke person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, the phenomenon of it not being able to win, it's like you're, you, you have the, the strange feeling that you're trying to nail Jello to the wall. Yeah. Yeah. You just, you're yeah. not. And the entire time they're getting more angry uh and you know you gotta keep your cool right like which which is hard because they're getting more angry they might start engaging in ad hominems they might start calling you nasty names and god help you if you've got other people around you while this is happening because um, what other people see and this, this is a problem with debates and, and discussions between people in general but it's especially a problem in woke conversations you're trying to you know help them see reason um if you're remaining calm and they're getting upset, other people looking on just see 
a person getting upset, maybe even crying or tearing up, their voice cracking, and somebody being stern and stoic. And they will assume that the crying person is the victim and that they must be defended. And then you're the evil bully who made them feel sad, right? right. So you got to be careful about that. If you're, if you're ever debating or getting into a discussion with a woke person in public, God help you if they're a racial minority and you're not. Because uh, that is, oh, no, he's not just a bully. He's an evil, sexist, racist, all the ist, all the phobic bully. Yeah. Boo that man, you know? It's, it's classic um, emotional blackmail. And it's designed, I think, yeah. not just for the third party spectator, but it's also designed to have an impact on you. You yeah. know, when you have an argument with someone and they begin to cry and it's, you know, there, there is a potential. I'm not saying that every time someone cries who you, with whom you may be arguing that you should think negatively about this situation. Yeah. But if you're having an argument about something that is, uh, for instance, a political issue yeah. that you should, you would expect that both people could have, could engage in civil discourse. And one of them starts crying and getting hysterical perhaps, and then accusing you of ad hominem things. Yeah. I think you can consider that they're probably using emotional blackmail at that point and that you not only does that not warrant the kind of sympathy that you might otherwise give, but you should actually consciously deny that sympathy because it's mm-hmm. it's almost a, a kind of like, um, it's like a narcissistic, uh, what is the term? Um, I forget, but, uh, it's, it, it's an, it's a manipulation tactic. You know, yeah. so. And even, even if it, even if it isn't like, let's, let's say it isn't that you still don't want to reinforce that behavior. All right. Mm. Because then they're just going to keep doing it. You know, they're going to keep doing it either because either for the sake of emotional blackmail or because no one's ever told them no. No one's ever told them, hey, you know what? We can have this conversation, but I'm not going to sit here and be called a racist or a white supremacist because I'm asking you for concrete evidence of your claims. You know, we're not going to do that. Yeah, I I think to a degree, we're probably going to have to move on from having these conversations with individuals like this. I think that part of the overall, whether you call it wokeness or uh, I don't know, I'll just use that term for now. It preys upon the better angels of our nature. It's been able mm-hmm. to get as far as it has because there's been hang, hand wringing by people on the other side of the table who've been accused of these things. And they're like, oh, oh, I don't want to be perceived as that. I'm so sorry. What can we do? Let's make allowances. Let's make some space. Let's allow you to center yourselves. And then you can accuse us of even more things. And we will, there's, 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 there's this kind of, you know, these concessions are made. And eventually I think we're going to have to realize that the conversations that matter are going to be the conversations between the stern-faced people, not the conversations between the stern-faced people and the hysterical weepers, because they're, Mm -hmm. They're not to be reasoned with. And it's the conversations like the one that we're having and mm-hmm. maybe the people who are listening where there can be progress made because this goes all the way back to the ancients. You know, if you want mm-hmm. to make progress in a discussion, you're going to have to, if you want to play a game of chess with somebody, you can't just start moving the pieces however you please and flicking their queen off the board with your finger because yeah. it doesn't. you're not playing chess anymore. When you're having civil discourse, within the parameters of logic and analysis and fact and truth and data and all of that good stuff. How dare that, you do it? That's where the progress is made. Even yeah. if you start off in, in 180 degree opposition, that's how mm-hmm. you have that opposition. And when you're engaging people, as you've been describing, I sometimes start to think maybe the problem is that we're engaging them. Maybe there are some of them who can be persuaded. But yeah. there are so many more who, like you gave earlier with the example of the gentleman who sits down with KKK members, um, yes, like the old story of throwing the starfish into the sea and somebody says, why are you doing that? It won't make any difference. And the guy says, he just doesn't respond and he picks up another starfish and throws it into the sea and he says, it made a difference to that one. And I always think of the starfish story when I think of that guy. But there's so many more members of the white nationalist community who you cannot reach. Yeah, you, you can't shouldn't reach. try. You should not try. They yeah. are they're not going to change their mind. And that's how I also feel about this. At that at a certain point we have to move the conversation on without a lot of these people because they're just always going to be there. Yeah, we've we've extended charity to people who would bludgeon us to death with the identity characteristics we can't change. Uh, we're trying to rationalize with people who do not value and actually disdain rationality. We're trying to talk about using the scientific method and evaluating data 
uh, with people who think the scientific method is a tool of white supremacy and data it is absolutely incorrect if it doesn't agree with what they already believe to be true. Um, I think that, like, like you're saying, like we we need to stop having conversations with these people. We are going to be accosted by these people. We are going to be called sexists, white supremacists. I call I call these things. I've heard it called piling on in this other book called Counter Wokecraft. I used to call it um, a buckshot of bullshit um, because it's basically means they just load up every single word that ends in ist and ism and phobia, and they just they shoot it at you, right? So you're you transphobe, xenophobe, you know, blah 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 blah, and you're like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Can you justify any of those things individually, much less all together? But they're going to do that, right? So we're, I think we need to we need to stop. DEI and all this nonsense moving on without those other people because they're not going to they're not going to buy into it but we're going to have to be prepared to push back against them when they inevitably you know, whine and cry and try to cancel us and all that kind of stuff. Um the analogy that I like to use um and I thought about this after the uh the the speech I gave at UCR um about, about a month ago um is if a pipe breaks in your house the very first thing you do is not grab a bucket and a mop. The first thing you do is turn off the flow so that you don't have more of the problem to clean up afterward. If you've got multiple people, then you can have one person turn off the flow of the water and the other person get cleaning up materials, but you really got to turn off the flow of the problem. The same thing goes for DEI. We can have people who are saying things like, we should judge each other by the content of our character, uh, not by the color of our skin. We should put skills in the workplace over sex and sexuality. We should do all these valuable things. We should go back to the uh, morality of Martin Luther King Jr., not the pseudo-morality of people like Ibram X. Kennedy, whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, we need to stop the flow of DEI. And for me, that means going to the court system and banning it as fundamentally discriminatory. I think that spread out through all the people who are fighting against DEI right now, we have hundreds upon hundreds of examples, maybe even thousands of examples, to show that discrimination, exclusion, and inequality are fundamentally part of DEI. They're not something that is, um, you know, just accidentally there. It is fundamentally a part of it in a way that violates the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And because of that, we can take legal action against it. Stop the tap. Stop the flow of the water, stop the problem, and then begin cleaning up afterward, okay? Begin injecting our culture with more of the values that work. And you can do that during this too, but stop the problem right now. That is very well said and maybe a good note to end on. I, I like that very much. I especially like the part where you're talking about knowing better than to use science, logic, and reason with people who have openly refuted mm. these things as inherently flawed if not evil and so yeah. at that point i think we know where we stand thank you so much for your time this has been a fascinating and an interesting conversation and uh, uh fascinating and interesting it's been a lot of fun i look forward to hearing more from you and i wish you the best thank you david thank you for having me